This is the Data Privacy Detective. We're recording this on Halloween, so trick or treat, everybody. And, you know, data privacy news is often trick or treat. And we're going to talk about what happened in the month of October 2023. And a lot happened. So we're going to start with uh, my good friend and colleague, Brian uh, St. Amour. And Brian, now something happened that the White House announced. Tell us about it. Yeah, so yesterday, October 30th, President Biden issued an executive order um, directed towards safe and secure and trustworthy artificial intelligence, or AI, as we tend to have that term focused in in our memory now. Um, but data privacy was interestingly a key focus of the order where President Biden called on Congress to really try to garner bipartisan support to, to focus on federal data privacy legislation. Um, specifically geared towards children, which is likely the area where most support um, exists within the, the bipartisan Congress. And, you know, this would be a significant step towards uh, federal data privacy law, which to date has largely been managed in the U.S. through a patchwork of state statutes. Right. And with us also is, as always in these monthly updates, is my good friend and colleague, Hugo Nagashima. And Hugo, what questions do you have about what Brian's brought up? Well, thank you, Joe. And first, trick or treat, everyone. So here's my trick uh, to you, Brian. Why would the president call for federal data privacy legislation, right, which is a congressional thing, in an executive order? Um, why is that? Well, I mean, I think uh, it was largely stems from the fact how AI is is trained and used. And, you know, ultimately, AI makes it easier to extract and exploit personal information. And companies utilize data to train the systems. And, and often that data uses personal information in order to get the behaviors that the, that the company wants the AI to perform with. And so because data privacy is such an important piece of considering a regulatory framework for AI, this is directionally why the president took this opportunity to really push Congress for, for data privacy protection. And is there any other reason, for example, you know, um, the training that goes on? We tend to focus on generative AI, but what's the training aspect? Is there is there a training aspect to it? Yeah, so the training aspect of the, the you know, the AI tools, the, the tools need lots of information. Ultimately, the AI learns by having more information. And so some of the ways that the executive order is going to try to increase this protection, because, you know, certainly the president has limited what he can do without congressional support. And what they're going to try to, you know, he's going to do is focus on directing some of the, the funding related for privacy research through the Research Coordination Network and through the National Science Foundation to really kind of earmark privacy specific research within the AI um, scheme. And then they also want to evaluate how federal agencies collect and use commercially available information, including information purchased from data brokers, which if within the, this piece, the government purchases a fair amount of data from data brokers or utilizes data from data brokers. And so this is going to be an important aspect because if the government limits how that information can be used, ultimately those data brokers may make some of their own self changes and how they're treating that privacy information. And then finally, they're going to really develop guidelines for the federal agents to evaluate whether or not any of these solutions are effective for privacy-preserving techniques. So and I want to just take a step back. Uh, you know, we, we talk about data brokers a lot. Can you just briefly describe what that is? 
Yeah, so a data broker would be a, a group that aggregates this information. So maybe they invite you to participate or otherwise take your information and then they, they kind of compile this information and can provide it to third parties. Data brokers also could be um, third party, like, you know, background check organizations and, and others in that type of um, industry where they're providing kind of a source of truth for the information that's available um, on a particular person. Has this had any impact around the world um, or is it just a U.S. thing? Uh, our interest in, interest in AI and the developments of creating re uh, regulations and legislations for AI. Well, what's really interesting is on the same day, um, the G7 actually announced that, that they reached an agreement on an AI code of conduct, uh, which is focused on 11 principles, uh, really to, you know, covering a number of different avenues of, of AI. But one in, in the 11th principle that was listed is really requiring the implementation of appropriate data input measures and protections for personal data and intellectual property. And so this gets back to your question you go around the data training piece because there are some significant issues around intellectual property as well as personal data within how these AI machines are being trained. And I think AI is going to be an important area of focus, um, you know, both in the U.S. and internationally. As one, it's in the public scheme now, but we're seeing rapid advancements, and I think data privacy is going to be a core piece of consideration as all of these regulations teams move forward. Very good. Well, Brian, uh, Hugo, thanks on that. Let's uh, let, let, let's turn to you, Hugo. Um, Federal Trade Commission, the United States Federal Trade Commission, there to uh, deal with, uh, what, deceptive and unfair business practices. But boy, has it been in the data privacy business lately. What, what, what happened in October? Well, the Federal Trade Commission amended its safeguard rules uh, to require not just, so before it was just banking institutions, but non-banking institutions to report certain data breaches to the FTC. Now, hold on, you, you said the FTC safeguards rule. What, well, what is that? That is a rule that before required, uh, you know, banking institutions to develop and implement, maintain a data security program. And by data security program, what we mean is, you know, having certain certifications, making sure certain data is encrypted during transfer or when it's stored, proper safeguards to protect the sensitive information. For example, do you need two-factor authentication for certain people to access it and basically keep the data secure so that hackers don't really attack it or threat actors don't attack it. So before the amendment, the safeguard rules really applied just to banking institutions and also the, there was no rule for uh, breach notification, but that's been added. Okay, so now non-banking financial institutions uh, are addressed by the uh, the FTC, and and who who are these these new non-bank financial institutions? Well, the definition is a bit complicated, so I'm going to skip that because even if I say it, it's it's not going to be memorable. Uh, but here's some of the examples that's listed out. It's a Retailer that extends credit is considered a financial institution, an automobile dealership that leases a car, check cashing business, an account or tax prep services in the business of completing income tax. Uh, you know, they take sometimes your check information or your credit card information, a real estate settlement uh, agency, those types of organizations, uh, mortgage brokers, 
uh, investment advisory companies that may take your financial information and then, you know, purchase stock or do other investments. Those organizations are also implicated. So these are all handling sensitive financial information of all of us. And uh, so now they're under the scope of the, at least some of the safeguard role. What, what is the new obligation that these these new these non-banking financial institutions have under the safeguards rule? So it's very similar to some of the data breach uh, reporting obligations we see in states and these uh, new financial institutions, you know, the non-banking financial institutions, if there's a breach, they must report the breach to two things. First, if the data is unencrypted, right? Uh, and the customer information is just, it becomes public and it involves over 500 individuals, 500 or more individuals. Well, that's so not encrypted information breach. Right. Okay, but in 500 or more, if it's two or three people, uh, no no report required. And what's in the report? I mean, what gets reported to the FTC? Is it reported to the FTC, and, and what is it? Right, so there's five items, and again, very similar to state data breaches, uh, name and contact information of the financial institution, whoever's responsible, uh, description of the type of information that was involved in the breach. We see that in many state breach notification obligations. Uh, if possible, to determine the date or the date range of the breach. And again, this is very similar to states, the number of consumers affected, and general description of the event so that people understand what happened. Uh, And and of course, the regulator understands what happened. Uh, And another point, which um, again, very similar to state state breach notifications, when law enforcement has been informed or the law enforcement side said, hey, you know, please don't go and report it, you you have to notify the FTC, the agency that that determination has made, and that's why notification got delayed uh, due to a criminal investigation or national security threat. We see that all the time in the state notifications. That also applies. So it pretty much tracks what state breach notification laws are, are requiring. But instead of just reporting the states, now these type of institutions must report to the FTC. Right. And uh, the 500 or more individuals, that's a lower threshold than we're seeing in a lot of the state laws. I think it's similar. I think that's similar. Typically, okay. Yeah, very similar. And and where the where does the report get sent? So on FTC's website, again, very similar to state breach notification laws, where certain states will have a website where you type in the state and breach notification, and up pops a web website and a landing page where you can put in the information. So that's very similar. So the structure itself is instead of having to go to each state, well, you still have to go to each state, but in addition, you have to file with. FTC. Very interesting. And, and building on what Brian told us about, in, in the absence of a federal code, the way we've seen in what now, 12 states, here's a federal agency saying, well, at least on data breach reporting, we're going to go ahead and order you to do it. So interesting how federalism works in the United States. Well, tell you what, let's let's move overseas. We'll go to the United Kingdom, King Charles's kingdom on October 30. I'm sorry, October 17th. Clearview AI faced a decision by a United Kingdom court, and it won. It, it, the, the UK court, three judges, ruled in favor of Clearview AI against the UK's information commissioner. Now, what was the case about? Well, let's, let's talk what Clearview is. Clearview AI is a US-based uh, company in the facial recognition business. And it it provides software services to law enforcement and government agencies and other other businesses such as banks 
And, and what it does, it has an algorithm, AI. Here we are, the AI picture that we've been talking about in uh, section one of this. And it matches faces that, let's say, a, 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 law, for, a law enforcement agency sends it to a database of now what is more than 20 billion images of people that it collects or scrapes from the Internet, including from social media applications uh, such as Facebook and so on. And Clearview AI's website is this, quote, quoting for its website, building a secure world one face at a time, close quote. And it's got 20 billion photos of all of us uh, in its database. Well. So it scrapes these photos uh, from the internet. It doesn't go to the UK and scrape them. No, it does it right here in the United States or wherever else it scrapes them. And, and it makes money by matching these images as described to its customers, which are largely law enforcement agencies. Uh, they're really uh, you know, looking for people that it's uh, uh, trying to disrupt crime uh, for or to get people arrested for a crime that's been done. And we all want to disrupt that and uh, solve crimes. And for financial institution customers, uh, Clearview AI helps them to prevent financial fraud and, and identity theft. Well, who could be against that? Well, if, if those were only the only concerns. But Clearview AI has been under attack, uh, as we know, uh, from other countries and other places in the state of Illinois, because of concerns arising from AI and its imperfections and from data privacy. After all, when your photos scraped, uh, by Clearview AI, it doesn't tell you and get your consent. And uh, matching images, furthermore, is never perfect. A photo can be sent from a law enforcement agency, and the database can say, well, it seems to be this, this person who happens to live in, in uh, Liverpool. Well, that may not be the person. There's no 100% perfection in any of this stuff. And we know there isn't in, uh, in live face-to-face -face, uh, uh, ID. And, but we're unaware that our photos are being used for this generally, although I'm telling you that's the case now. Maybe you know that now. Well, enter GDPR, the European Union's rules about private data privacy. And after Brexit, what we call UK GDPR. That means GDPR under the rules of the UK now, which it's now free to change a bit if it wants to from uh, the Brussels uh, made rules. Well, what happened here was the UK's information commissioner fined Clearview 7.5 million pounds, close to 9 million US dollars, for violating UK and GDPR law by scraping the photos of people who live in the UK without their consent, which certainly happened in the trial court, ruled in favor of Clearview. Well, it explained, reading the decision, it almost sounds like UK commissioner is going to win. It, it said, well, wait a minute here. Clearview is a data controller. Uh, the behavior of UK residents is being monitored by Clearview's customers. And Clearview's processing is clearly related to the monitoring of behavior of, of, UK of, of its clients uh, about UK residents. So shouldn't it win? But it ruled no. Clearview's processing of scraped photos is not, quote, relevant processing, close quote, for purposes of Article 3 of GDPR and UK GDPR. And because of that, the UK Information Commissioner has no jurisdiction over Clearview AI, and, and so it can't impose a fine or require any changes to what Clearview does, at least outside of the UK. Well, what do we take from this? Now, if the court's decision is affirmed on appeal, we'll find out later, 
The ruling limits the extraterritorial reach of a country's personal data privacy law. Even when a foreign company is using photos, personal information, of that country's residents, and even though that clearly affects the resident's personal privacy interests. Now here, Clearview AI currently has no UK presence. It has no UK customers. And the photo with scrapes are available on the internet outside of the UK. So it seems reasonable as a basis for the decision. And a different ruling would really seem like an overreach of one country's data privacy rules trying to apply its own rules around the world. But at the same time, it means that digitized data, private as it may be for us, at least we think it is, once it's out on the internet, our data cannot be recaptured and controlled by us or by our government. And so in a way, we all become data citizens of the world with no law to protect us against the misuse of our personal information by foreign powers. Well, this leaves me with three observations. First, no one country can control the internet or how our personal information that's released to the internet is going to be used by others outside our country's boundaries. Second, if you want to keep your facial and other biometric information private, don't share it in the first place. And it's virtually impossible to recapture it or to prevent its spread uh, once you've allowed it to be released. Once personal information is digitized and released, photos cannot be erased. They become kind of an eternal face print of our existence. And the best we can do as individuals about that is to refuse to share our digital data in the first place. And when we're required to do so, such as getting a photo ID so we can go to the polls or drive a car, the best we can do is try to demand that those who get that photo don't share it with somebody else with no guarantee they're going to agree to do that. And that's pretty impractical if you think about it. If your photo is on Facebook, you're not going to retrieve it from the rest of the world. And then third, what can governments do to require AI businesses like Clearview AI to avoid harm? This is what Brian started us with, with President Biden's uh, executive order. Let's think of ways we can make AI work for the good uses that it has without doing harm. Wrongful use of AI can cause undue invasions of privacy, even catastrophic ones, if it's misused. If a shared image of an alleged terrorist or a criminal is sent to Clearview AI to see if it matches someone, and the photo is then matched with somebody who looks very much like that other photo, but it's not actually that person, wrongful arrest or targeted killing of an innocent person can happen. That would be the ultimate invasion of privacy. And all of us throughout the world share that. So the UK court ruling is, in its way, a call for industry and government to avoid the worst consequences of AI misuse, just as the nuclear age unleashed apocalyptic powers that can't be unlearned. So the advent of AI challenges the world to control the dark side of what can also build a more secure world. Your thoughts, Hugo, your reactions. So it's very interesting to contrast this with 
what happened, I think about a year ago in Italy with Fairview AI, this is under the GDPR. Of course, the UK follows a form of a GDPR, but they've turned it into their own UK GDPR. Interesting result. And maybe the UK result, it might be the right answer, but we, we still don't know whether the, on the GDPR side, whether Europe as a region will agree with this ruling. So that's something to look out. And uh, I want to touch upon the AI part because um, except for me, <laughs> we discussed AI topics today. And Joe, your last point will take in which, you know, AI is going to create certain issues. We're already seeing the development of AI, especially the fake facial recognition aspect of it, image generating. Uh, for example, Japan uh, just started a commercial for a tea, famous company, Itoen, which does a tea's tea in the United States. They have generated an AI actress to uh, represent a commercial for a new type of Japanese tea. Those items are happening. Of course, it when you look at the image, it reminds you of someone, or at least for a Japanese citizen, someone in who's in the the Japanese version of the Hollywood, you know, actress business. Well, you know, that person reminds me of that person. Again, we're, we we're gonna dive deep into this, and Brian mentioned it in his segment too. Intellectual property privacy, and also the right of publicity is going to all cross over. Uh, we, we haven't seen it collide yet fully, but I think we're going to start to see as case law develops and as more of the regulations develop, how these different laws will collide with AI, which will encompass everything. So that's that's my two cents on this topic. And we'll be coming back to this when deep fakes are with us. Uh, no surprise to people listening, I'm sure. Watch out for them, but how do you know they're deep and how do you know they're fakes? We'll come back to it. As always, I'll close this session by reminding us all, protecting your personal data begins with you. Music.